Hello and welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Podcast. I'm Laura Feetham and I'm very pleased to be joined for this, our World TB Day special episode, by Kirtan Dada, who's Professor of Respiratory Medicine and Head of the Division of Pulmonology at the University of Cape Town and Greta Scheer Hospital in South Africa. Kirtan, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, you're welcome, Laura, and uh, hello to uh, everyone that's listening. So the April issue of The Lancet Respiratory Medicine is packed full of new research, commentary and features on all of the current debates in tuberculosis treatment and management. There's too much in there for us to discuss everything today, so I'd like to ask you instead, Kirtan, about your thoughts on three articles in particular. The first is a study by Fraganese and colleagues who did a meta-analysis of individual participant data looking at different treatments for TB strains with isoniazid resistance but susceptibility to rifampicin. Uh, and they found that adding a fluoroquinolone to treatment regimens was associated with better outcomes than pyrazinamide alone, whereas addition of streptomycin was associated with less treatment success. But they concluded that the overall quality of the data was very low, with data mostly from observational studies, and the authors suggest that the results support the conduct of new randomised controlled trials in this population. However, RCTs take a very long time to do. So for doctors working in the field, do you think the results of this work should alter treatment decisions before RCTs are done? Uh, yeah, and, and, and I think this is a, a very important study and I think it's a very important question. That is, what is the optimal treatment of isoniazid resistant tuberculosis? And uh, as the authors correctly outlined in detail in the paper that this is really the gateway or one of the gateways to multi-drug resistant TB. As we know, that's a huge problem globally, responsible for almost a quarter of global TB mortality, very costly to treat and associated with uh, poor outcomes and which really threatens to subvert TB control in many parts of the world, including China, India, Russia, and many parts of Africa. So I think it's a very important question. Besides that, isoniazid resistant TB is associated with, in several studies, with poor outcomes and has prognostic implications. The other interesting angle to it is that currently um, we're using gene expert, the gene expert MTB RIF assay, and now with the ultra cartridge in South Africa and many TB endemic countries, and that actually doesn't pick up isoniazid resistance. And interestingly, uh, after two months of standard short course therapy, but a quarter of patients are still culture positive, so you know it's a spectrum in terms of how people respond to TB treatment. And not everyone is culture negative by two months. So effectively, in the continuation phase in isoniazid resistant patients, they're getting effective monotherapy, and so there's always been great concern that we could be driving MDR-TB. Now, currently in South Africa, we are using a combination of rapamycin, pyrazinamide, and etanbutol for six to nine months, but practically speaking, a lot of patients get six months of risk of poor for reasons of compliance and easy to dispense. And we also tend to use a bit of pharmacogenomics where depending on the type of mutation, we might even use high-dose INH. Now, the, the study is very important and this analysis is very important because it really addresses the question of whether we can use a fluoroquinolone-based regimen to treat isoniazid resistant TB, and most importantly, are the outcomes better? And what this analysis suggests is that the outcomes were better using chloroquinolone-based regimen, but there, as the authors themselves point out, there are a number of drawbacks or weaknesses to this conclusion, 
It was an observation. Most of the data sets were observational. There were a small number of patients that actually fitted into this category uh, in the in the study. The confidence intervals were wide. It also raises a number of questions for the program. For example, cost of drugs. Many countries still don't have access, uh, certainly in Africa, to fourth-generation chloroquinolone. And there are also issues regarding adverse events and monitoring of fluoroquinolone-based therapy, for example, uh, you know, ECG monitoring, CT prolongation, and so forth. My view, um, while study findings are a very strong driver for, or to argue for a clinical trial uh, to test an optimal regimen for isoniazid-resistant TB, and in particular, fluoroquinolone-based regimen, in my view, I don't think that it's something that we can uh, implement immediately into clinical practice for all the reasons that I mentioned. The other, of course, the, the other concern is the dose, optimal dosing of fluoroquinolone. And we also know that from the PET study and other studies that about t- at least 10 to 15% of patients, uh, despite perfect adherence, at least with NDRTB, subsequently develop fluoroquinolone resistance or resistance to second-line injectable drugs. So I think there are also implications about driving fluoroquinolone resistance, and so I think we need to look at this carefully. And certainly, based on the drawbacks uh, of the study, as the authors outlined, I think this strongly argues for a uh, clinical trial, but I don't think it's ready for prime time. The April issue also features a spotlight article on the provision of palliative care for people with drug-resistant tuberculosis, The authors Jennifer Hughes and Lee Snyman of MSF argue that palliative care should be provided to these patients. Firstly, do you agree? And if so, what hurdles stand in the way of this being rolled out? Thanks, Laura. Um, I think this is a very, very important subject because the reality is despite the advent of newer and repurposed drugs like Sedaculine and Omevalid, certainly in South Africa, the Overall, about a third of people with HDR-TB, for example, despite using vidaculine and benevolent-based regimens, in fact, have an unfavorable outcome. And so there are many patients uh, who, despite treatment, will um, uh, require care for terminal illness. I think this is a very important and integral aspect of a holistic approach for drug-resistant TB management. And certainly, I think like any disease, you know, the basic principles of medicine would apply. People uh, need to uh, exit with dignity and respect, comfort and without pain. And of course, in this particular instance, we also need to think about restricting transmission. In other words, individuals, feed family or others who are caring for these patients, obviously should themselves not uh, develop an untreatable condition. Now, I think uh, that's fairly clear, and I think most people would not argue about that. But in in practical terms, there are a number of hurdles. Uh, Firstly, the first hurdle is that of resource constraint and cost. And uh, the reality is even in in the Western Cape province, in Cape Town, South Africa, for example, in the the metropolitan area of Cape Town itself, uh, we have virtually no access to palliative care. Now, when uh, the, the, the practice at the moment is to, is in the case of programmatically incurable TB patients, uh, is to send them home and to provide support and care for them at home. 
and this is done through a controlled process through a provincial review committee. As it stands right now, even when these patients become more ill, they start coughing up blood, have hemoptysis, they require oxygen. Often, uh, you know, in, in, in environments where patients are often un- or families um, are uneducated or from poor socioeconomic backgrounds, often in, in the panic, these patients present to the accident and emergency departments or casualties of district general hospitals, and that's in reality what happens. And currently in Cape Town, for example, uh, it's quite shocking, but true that uh, we have no access to palliative care beds, certainly in the in the government sector. And there are a lot of other questions, practical questions around such facilities. Where do you locate such facilities? We have one facility in the Western Cape, but it's um, several hours away from Cape Town, and it's not really used by anyone because these facilities need to be located near family. There's the issue of infection control, so one needs to have in place not only personal protective measures, but environmental protection measures, ventilation, uh, using germicidal radiation if appropriate, and so forth in these facilities in order to provide palliative care. And even if this is being provided at home, HIV co-infection is quite common, and so one needs to be very careful at home about uh, ventilation and appropriate infection control. Now, in my view, I think this ought to be provided. It's critical. And while it's costly, I think we urgently need studies to show the cost-effectiveness of such an approach. So on the one hand, it might be costly at public health level, but I think it would be highly cost-effective because I think certainly onward transmission of disease is a problem. I think we need to do this in a way uh, that doesn't drive stigma. And we need to do it in a patient-centered way that preserves dignity and respect. And you may recall in uh, Lancet Respiratory Medicine last year, using tools like whole genome sequencing and cough aerosol sampling, we showed that uh, in about uh, in about 20% of patients who had failed treatment and had HDRTB and had been discharged into the community, uh, in about 20% of cases there was uh, an additional case that had contracted XDRTB after the individual had been discharged back into the community. So uh, obviously part of that is the palliative care part and infection control in that context, but I think that uh, makes the point that uh, palliative care facilities are provided, they have to be provided in certain contexts. But overall, I completely agree. I think this is extremely important. And we urgently uh, need to make a call for governments and policymakers in high MDRTV burden countries uh, to put more resources into this area. Thanks, Kirtan. A letter in the issue argues that the current recommended dose for the anti-TB drug rifampicin is too low. The authors note that the tuberculosis communities focus on a once-daily 600 milligram dose of rifampicin is worrisome. What are your thoughts on this, and should the standard dose of rifampicin be increased? So thanks for that question, Laura. I, I think it's a very important question, uh, simply because prevention is better than cure. So, you know, whilst we can talk about rolling out uh, new drugs and better diagnostics for drug-resistant TB, at the end of the day, we need to prevent the development of drug-resistant TB in the first place. And so the question these authors raise 
is a, a critical one because uh, they are asking the question, should we not be optimizing the, the dose of asampicin? And, and this is related to the to the paper on isoniazid monoresistant TB because it, both these are issues uh, germane to first-line treatment and are likely factors uh, amongst many other factors that could be driving the genesis of MDR uh, and subsequently XDR-TB. Now, uh, I certainly agree in principle that we need to optimize rifampicin treatment, but I think the letter raises a number of questions. Uh, the first one in my mind is, can we use therapeutic drug monitoring to correct the dose? And what is the impact of this strategy on outcomes? So, you know, even before we get to using uh, high-dose rifampicin for everybody, we know currently from studies done in Cape Town that almost a third of people who get rifampicin have low levels. And certainly in African populations, this has been related to a polymorphism in the SLC uh, 01B1 gene, which basically translates into more rapid metabolism of rifampicin. So I think even before we get to high-dose rifampicin for all, uh, currently I think we need to ask the question, uh, you know, can we measure rifampicin levels and how will that impact outcomes? And I think that is a, a study that's quite important and needs to be done. The second question is, can high-dose rifampicin actually shorten the duration of TB treatment? And as the authors point out, that is currently being addressed in a randomized controlled trial where they're looking at a dose of 1,200 and 1,800 milligrams to reduce the duration of TB treatment to, from six months to four months. And the third question for me was that if we use high-dose rifampicin in whatever dose, you know, with the conventional short-course therapy, is it safe under uh, programmatic conditions? Uh, and secondly, does it impact outcomes? Now, I think safety was, we know that it's been shown in, in phase two studies and smaller studies that it's probably safe from a toxicity point of view. At population level, especially in TB endemic countries, there's a lot of hepatitis B and some countries hepatitis C. Alcohol misuse is not uncommon. Uh, undiagnosed pregnancy and there's so many other issues. We know even with conventional TB treatment in about 20 to 30% of patients, there's increase in liver enzymes. Most of that is not clinically significant and doesn't require treatment to be stopped. But I think we need to find out under programmatic conditions uh, in a more generalizable way and with external validity how safe this is. And the, the, the second part to that is uh, does it impact outcomes? So, you know, it's it's one thing increasing the dose so that you get appropriate levels, but what is the impact on the clinical outcomes? And I think uh, that that question still needs to be addressed. So now I would recommend that where uh, available, uh, one should check the rifampicin levels, and if it's suboptimal, then uh, one should increase the rifampicin dose to 900 or 1,200 milligrams as appropriate. But on the question of routinely uh, using high-dose rifampicin, I think we need to uh, wait for the results of clinical trials, and we also need to establish efficacy and safety under programmatic conditions. Thanks very much, Kirtan. It's been really interesting talking to you. All of the articles Kirtan discussed today are published in the April issue of the Lancet Respiratory Medicine and are available online now.